0: Hello and welcome to The Coping Toolbox, a child psychology podcast hosted by clinical psychologist Dr. Layla Din Osman, Dr. Mary Simri McDonald, and Dr. Jennifer Vrend. We hope that this podcast helps parents, children, and teens learn new coping skills in dealing with their stress and anxiety, and to help strengthen relationships in their lives.
1: Hello, and welcome to episode two of The Coping Toolbox. I am Dr. Mary Simring mcdonald and today I'm joined again by my wonderful co-hosts, Dr. Jennifer Friend and Dr. Leila din Osman. Today, we're talking about anxiety in children and teens, so we're looking at what that looks like and how it's experienced. Then in our next episode, we will talk about coping strategies and how parents can help their kids. I'm really excited to chat about this topic today. Anxiety is an issue that comes up very frequently in our clinical practice, and it's the most common mental health condition experienced by children. Another reason why this will hopefully be a helpful discussion is because many of the strategies we talk about today can be applied to other areas of difficulty. So I thought that we could start out by talking about what anxiety is and how it develops. Dr. Layla, would you be able to give us some insight into what anxiety is?
0: absolutely so anxiety is a very natural response to perceived threat so everybody has this natural response when we feel like we're in danger and we call it the flight fight or freeze response and actually it's interesting because all animals have this response in them right so um, in the right circumstances when there is perceived threat it's a really helpful response so for example If you're walking across the street and you see a car coming, it's really helpful to feel scared and jump out of the way. However, uh, what happens with a lot of anxiety disorders or symptoms is that um, we apply this response in situations that are not really life threatening. And so, for example, you have a test tomorrow at school and you might start to get some of those symptoms of the flight or fight or freeze response um, because your body perceives that danger, even though it's not a life or death situation. Um, So again, all animals have this response and uh, it's a very normal reaction, but we don't always apply it to the right situations. We know that there's a part of our brain um, that is responsible for this flight, fight or freeze response and um, that part of the brain gets activated in those threatening situations and there are certain things we can do to sort of deactivate that part of the brain when we're feeling really stressed, which we'll talk about a bit later.
2: Just to um, to add to what Dr. Layla said, I think um, one of the things, and, and maybe we're gonna get into this later, but um, I think based on what she said, um, there's this piece of anxiety where I have a lot of clients that come in and they think anxiety is a bad thing. Um, but as Dr. Layla was just saying, it's actually a very adaptive and important response. So I'm always talking to my clients about anxiety being a healthy thing, a good thing, an important thing. Um, And a lot of people are surprised that I say anxiety is a positive thing, right? It's more about when the anxiety gets out of control, that's when it's considered more of a negative issue.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really great point. So anxiety is something that's very adaptive. It's very helpful in the right situations. Um, Just like Dr. Layla was describing, if we look both ways before crossing a street or if we encounter a bear in the woods, course, we want our anxiety response to be activated. Um, but sometimes this happens in situations that are actually non threatening. And that's where sometimes it can become problematic. So I often talk to my clients about it as, you know, a smoke alarm that's going off in situations where there isn't a fire, essentially
0: to add to what Dr. Jen was saying, a little bit of anxiety can be very helpful in certain situations. Like if you weren't at all nervous for a test the next day, you probably wouldn't be very motivated to study. Um, So we know that anxiety in very small doses can actually help motivation and can help you uh, succeed in certain situations. But when it becomes too high, it becomes impairing, right? Where let's say your anxiety is so high because you have the test tomorrow that you can't study and you cannot focus. That's when it becomes more of an issue.
1: It's that really nice model where it's that optimal level of anxiety where it helps performance. Um, When it's too little, we're not motivated enough to put effort into it. Um, And then when it's too much, it impacts our ability to perform. So we want that optimal level um, where the anxiety is adaptive. Now, Dr. Jen, I wondered if you might be able to talk a little bit more about how anxiety develops. That's often a question that comes up for me, certainly where parents come in and say, you know, where, where did this come from? How did this develop. Um, Do you have any insight on that?
2: Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I have a lot of clients that come in as well and and are curious about that. Um, Sometimes I have clients that, you know, parents that think, you know, is this my fault? Uh, Did I do something wrong? Um, So it's important to look at factors involved in, in how anxiety develops. So we actually have a model that we use. It's called the diathesis stress model. Um, which looks like there's kind of two main parts to it. The first is sort of this, um, we call it a genetic predisposition. So it's just basically um, when we're born, we may have more of a vulnerability to to things like stress, uh, to anxiety, to depression, um, different things like that. And that's there because that is a genetic piece, right? So there is a family history there. And it's not anything that anyone's done wrong, but more this is just how we were born. Um, So you have that predisposition. Um, The other really important piece is environmental factors. So um, sometimes, I mean, all of us are going to experience different stressors, but we're going to experience different levels of those stressors, right? Um, And so if we are, you know, have a genetic predisposition, and it's quite likely that, you know, that we get more anxious about things, those stressors might have a higher impact. Um, And sometimes we have different stressors that affect us differently, so maybe we have a genetic predisposition to be more anxious, um, and then on top of that, you know, we're exposed to some bullying when we're growing up, and, you know, maybe there's some um, financial issues, then maybe there's a job loss and things like that, and we go through these different stressors, and we're going to respond in a more intense way if we have that genetic predisposition. Um, So the other piece to that is, you know, we, I don't want people to feel like, well, if I have this genetic predisposition and there's anxiety in my family, then it means that I'm definitely going to get anxious, Um, because the other big piece that comes in is um, protective factors, right? So there's things that we can do, developing a good social network, developing good coping skills, Um, you know, there's lots of things that we can put in place that are going to help to kind of manage those, um, those, the interaction between our genetic predisposition and the environmental factors. And I'd I'd like
0: to add a little bit to that, Dr. Jen. The other thing that I think it's important to mention is um, the social learning aspect of anxiety um, that plays here, right? So you mentioned the genetic predisposition, which is quite strong, um, and then the environmental factors. And a part of that could be when a child is developing what they see others being fearful of as well, especially parents, right? And, and it's not to place too much blame on parents, but um, you know, parents are human too. And we have our own set of fears from our own life experiences. And sometimes that can play out in ways that our child observes Um, and children often look to their parents or their safety figures to, uh, figure out what is threatening in the environment. Right. So for example, a very simple example would be a child is walking down the street with their parents and a dog is coming, but, um, perhaps mom is phobic of dogs. So she has a very fearful response. And then the child learns to associate the dog with fear or that dogs are dangerous and thus a phobia of dogs develops in the child as well. So, um, there is that social learning aspect of anxiety that, um, you know, is something that parents can also be mindful of as they're working to help their children overcome their anxieties.
2: That's how, that's a really good point, um, Dr. Leila. And um, as you were saying that, I was thinking too. Um, and again, it comes down to we don't want parents to blame themselves, right? So um I know I've had situations before where there are, you know, similar phobias, right? So it might be a phobia of needles, and the parent and the child both have it. And there's sort of that um genetic predisposition, but then, like you say, also the, the modeling that's happening where the parent is fearful. Um, and so we can often, you know, we can frame it in a really positive way where it's, you know, we can actually work on both at the same time. And that's scary for the parent, but it's scary for the kid too, right? And it's sort of, again, it's sort of that modeling, you know, I have this fear, I have this anxiety, but there's things that I can do. Um, and that can be a really positive experience because they can kind of coach each other and kind of help each other through that process.
1: Yeah, I love those examples. I think those are great examples. There's this vulnerability that we're born with that makes us more susceptible to possibly developing anxiety. But as you pointed out, there are things that we can do to help with this, both in terms of what we're modeling as parents, um, and also just different protective factors that we can boost up to help kids as well. Um, So those are great examples. And you know, we see lots of different types of anxiety in our practice. Um, Dr. Layla, would you be able to speak to what sorts of anxiety disorders or just anxiety in general comes through your door in your practice?
0: Absolutely. So keeping in mind um, that uh, the three of us actually work in uh, private practice. So we see a different segment of the population than let's say a hospital-based program would, um, where they might see different types of presenting concerns. But I would say the vast majority of clients that I see um, are presenting with uh, mild to moderate anxiety disorders. And the most common for me um, would be social anxiety, especially in teens. Um, I do see some specific phobias and OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder quite often. Um, And also, I think in recent years, I've been seeing more and more anxiety related to uh, perfectionism and wanting to be uh, perfect at everything, you know, you're doing or, you know, a lot of these students are uh, involved in competitive sports or straight A students. And so they're having a lot of academic perfectionism, um, which we need to address in our therapy sessions. But there's all kinds of different types of anxiety, it is most definitely the most common presenting issue that I see in uh, clinical practice. Um, And I would say, like I said, at the beginning, social anxieties is is definitely one that comes up very, very often in kids and and in teens.
1: And Dr. Jen, how about you? Do you see similar sorts of um, anxiety presentations in your practice as well?
2: Yes, very similar to Dr. Layla. Um, so, uh, and anxiety is also, it's, it's um, the most common referrals that I get are for anxiety. Uh, and I think that makes a lot of sense because as we were talking about earlier, we all have a certain level of anxiety. The issue is just when that anxiety gets out of control. Um, so Dr. Layla was saying lots of, um, lots of social anxiety, generalized anxiety. Another thing that I'm seeing a, a lot of is um, obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, and, um, also a lot of, um, separation, anxiety, and school refusal is something that I work with. Um, so just challenges with the idea of separating from your, your parents, your primary caregivers, um, whether at nighttime or whether, like I say, going to school and and those types of areas.
1: Yeah. And I think with a lot of the different types of anxiety or separation anxiety in particular, there are some developmental stages where this is appropriate. Some of this is normal as part of that developmental stage. But again, it's, you know, when we're seeing this occurring over time or at a stage where it's not necessarily developmentally as typical, um, you know, where we start to look at ways that we can help with that. The other thing that I was thinking as you were both talking is that sometimes anxiety comes in as the presenting issue. So it's the thing that's creating the greatest challenge. Um, and other times it's secondary to other issues. So we do often see anxiety as part of other areas of challenge as well. So um, in particular eating disorders, I'm thinking of anxiety is often a very big component of that. Um, you know, developmental disabilities or, you um, you know, for clients who come in, who are neurodiverse, um, sometimes anxiety is a big part of that as well. So we see it sometimes come in as it's, you know, um, as the main issue, and other times it's the secondary issue. Now, Dr. Jen, would you be able to explain to us what actually happens in our body when we experience anxiety?
2: Sure. So when, um, basically when our brain perceives something and we think that there's a threat, our body goes into what we call the Mm fight-flight-freeze response. Um, And the reason for this, I think Dr. Layla had touched on this earlier, but um, it's really um, kind of based on our evolution and how we evolved. And she mentioned um, animals having anxiety. Um, And it's there for survival. So it's basically the idea is there's some sort of threat. And then we have to decide, do we, do we fight? So, for example, if there's a predator, do we fight that predator? Do we, the flight response is, you know, do we run for our lives? Or the freeze response is sort of that, you know, play dead type of thing. Um, so it developed that way. It was sort of more to deal with things like predators in our environment. The issue now is that our environment is quite different. Um, most of us are not living in a, an environment where we're worried about uh, you know a saber toothed tiger coming out of the bushes, uh, but the response is the same. So we're having to deal with this sort of primitive response um, to a very different environment. So when this happens, we have an increase in um, different hormones in our body. So things like adrenaline uh, and cortisol are increasing, and they're they're causing different types of physical symptoms. So when we're feeling anxious. We often have different things going on in our bodies and for different people it might be different Uh, but some examples are our heart will start uh, beating really quickly we might start breathing uh, really rapidly Um, for some people you get sort of a dry mouth or a choking feeling Um, it's also really common to have um, headaches or the um, you know stomach aches or butterflies in your stomach and muscle tension is another really common one so your muscles start to feel tense um, and again, all of these things are happening um, because our body's getting ready for this, you know, do I need to fight? Do I need to run? Or am I gonna freeze? Um, and all of these things are contributing to those responses.
1: And these are really important areas to highlight because I was thinking as you were talking about the fight, flight, freeze response. Sometimes, for example, with the fight response, um, others may not recognize that what's happening there is being driven by anxiety, right? You see a child lashing out and, you know, literally fighting in that moment. And maybe they're paying attention to the behaviors without recognizing that there's this underlying anxiety that is driving them into that fight response. So understanding, you know, this fight, flight, freeze response is is really important um, in being able to help our children when they're experiencing this. Dr. Layla, did you have anything to add there to what Dr. Jen was talking?
0: I think your last point is is very relevant, especially with younger children who don't necessarily have the verbal skills to talk about their emotions um, the way perhaps an older child or teenager could. Um, so I find in, in our work, a lot of the time, the beginning stages is helping children to learn how to identify some of these physical symptoms they have in their body. I would say the most common one I hear of in younger children um, is tummy aches, right? So reporting tummy aches before school or after school or complaining about pain in their body when there's no medical reason. um, I would say those are the two most common that I see. But I think the first step in helping your younger child with anxiety is to help them identify, hey, like this is how our body feels when we're scared. And these are the possible symptoms that you may be feeling like your heart may feel like it's racing. Or you may feel like you want to punch something really hard because you're scared, uh, or your tummy might start to hurt. Or you might feel dizzy. Um, that's actually, you know, worries or anxiety in your body that is growing, and that's a sign that we need to use some calm down strategies. So it's really helpful as a first step to discuss these symptoms with your child and and recognize them as parents as well. As you know, like Dr. Mary was saying, if your child is starting to turn towards, um, you know, hitting as a response, well, that may be, you know, a sign that they're feeling a bit anxious. In that moment?
2: I find too in, uh, in my practice, um, it's often helpful to have. I have a diagram where it's kind of the outline of a, uh, a body, and then the child can kind of put, um, they can draw on the body and kind of say, you know, when I'm feeling uh, anxious or when I'm feeling angry, this is where I'm really feeling it, right? And so there's, they often will, like the stomach's such a big one, right? And then there's often digestive issues that follow. Um, but it's often a very physical feeling when they're young, so the stomach aches, the headaches, those types of things. Um, and I find just being able to draw it out really is really can be helpful. Mm-hmm.
0: And to add to that too, I think it's so helpful because everyone experiences it differently, right? So one child may have stomach aches, um, while another child is going to talk about headaches or tension in their shoulders. So drawing it out helps the child identify for them specifically where they feel their anxiety.
1: And it's so empowering to make this, this link between our physical symptoms and what's happening for us emotionally, because some of these things can actually feel quite scary without knowing why they're happening. And we didn't talk about this before, but panic, um, panic attacks, that's something else that I have um, a lot of clients come in presenting with, especially with my teenage clients. Um, And oftentimes they don't immediately recognize what's happening as an anxious response. And it's pretty scary for them. Sometimes they think something's wrong with them. Sometimes they're worried that they won't be able to breathe. Um, So doing that first step of just really identifying what these physical symptoms are indicating for us emotionally and with young kids i often like to ask them you know in these moments where they're struggling i often like to ask them hey what's happening in your body right now to help them get into the habit of paying attention to some of these physical signs Now, we talked about this a little bit um, earlier, but I wonder, Dr. Leila, if you can talk a bit more about this idea of helpful versus harmful anxiety.
0: For sure. So we we touched on this earlier, as you mentioned, um, this idea that anxiety in small doses is actually a very helpful thing. It helps motivate us toward being productive or studying for exams or performing at, let's say, you know, a competitive sport. Um, But when they become or when the anxiety reaches a really high level, it can become quite impairing for our functioning. So that means, um, you know, as we discussed before, feeling so anxious that you can't focus or you can't sit still and study for that exam, or you're so overcome by the anxiety that you just withdraw from the competitive sport altogether because it's so overwhelming. Right, um, So when it starts to impair, we call it impair your functioning. So basically, you can't function the way you used to. We know that, that it's becoming a bigger and bigger problem. In young children, it can be a little bit trickier to um, to notice because children can't verbalize the way adults can, or they're not as self-aware necessarily of what's going on. Um, in their mind or in their body right so you may see things like uh, frequent uh, you know complaints or worrying so for example you're on your way to school and your child is complaining about you know going to school that day not wanting to go wishing to stay home and frequently every day it's the same complaint right Um, Seeking a lot of reassurance from parents. So, you know, mommy, daddy, is this going to be okay? Uh, Is everything going to go well? Um, You know, should I be scared? Is anything bad going to happen? So a lot of reassurance seeking is what we see in kids. And I would say probably the most frequent one is avoidance, right? So um, not wanting to participate in school or in a sport or go to a friend's house or go to a party or socialize. A lot of that avoidance comes through in, in children because- in the short term, avoidance works really well, right? If we avoid something we're scared of, our anxiety goes way down fairly quickly. Um, but the problem is avoidance as a long term strategy is is never helpful, um, because it doesn't teach the child how to manage the anxiety and find more effective coping strategies. So I'm sure we'll get into that next. But you know, avoidance is often one of the first things we work on in, in clinical practice is how to um, stop that vicious cycle of avoiding or giving into our child's avoidance behaviors.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really important point because sometimes the things that the anxiety is telling us to do, um, they actually end up the things being the things that prolong it, that make it um, harder to manage. Dr. Jen, would you be able to talk a little bit more about that? Just how our anxiety goes from maybe being a minor issue, something where we're hearing about, you know, worries here and there into something where it snowballs into, you know, school avoidance, for example, or something that's impairing our functioning in a bigger way?
2: Sure. So, I mean, I think um, the way that the anxiety grows um, has a little bit to do with just um, how, how we uh, kind of fight back against the anxiety Um, So I often talk to to the kids that I work with about facing our fears and how important it is to face our fears. Um, So the first step is usually understanding anxiety and understanding how anxiety works. And then the next step is trying to be able to to face whatever those fears might be. Um, Just to kind of give a simple example, um, sometimes what happens is sometimes um, we get these ideas in our mind, right? So um, I'm going to give a silly example here where, say, my anxiety said to me, um, red chairs uh, are really scary. You don't want to go anywhere near red chairs. So then if I decided, "Okay, I'm never going to go near a red chair, um, it would reinforce that idea that red chairs are scary because by avoiding red chairs, it teaches me that avoiding those red chairs keeps me safe. Right, so I might decide, okay, I'm not going to go any t- into any houses that have a red chair, or um, I'm going to stay out of rooms that have a red chair. And every time I do that, it reinforces this idea: Hey, I'm safe because I avoided the red chair. So you kind of develop this this um, this way of thinking um, that isn't actual reality, but our it's for because our anxiety is there, it's telling us that okay, by avoiding that, you're safe, right? So then what we do um, is actually work on the opposite end where it's like, okay, but if I face that worry, so if I say, okay, red chairs are really scary, but I'm going to see what it's like to get a little bit closer to a red chair and see what happens. Um, and we might slowly want to kind of get closer and closer to these red chairs. Right. Um, and by doing that, you're actually proving, um, and kind of facing your anxiety and saying, Hey, you know what? Red chairs, aren't so scary. I got closer and closer and closer. And I even sat in a red chair. Um, and nothing happened. I was okay. So it's kind of proving the opposite. And that's how we kind of work against letting that anxiety grow.
1: Yeah, that's a great example. So Having this experience where the thing we thought would happen or the thing our anxiety was telling us would happen does not actually happen, that helps us become more comfortable. Um, So that's a really great example of why it's important to face these fears. And this can be a bit of a tricky issue, uh, especially with young kids who have a hard time maybe maybe buying into this idea um, that facing our fears is actually adaptive and actually helpful. So having this education around what anxiety is and how it works um, can be a very important part of getting them to buy into this process. Um, and I often talk about it with clients as, you know, relief being this reinforcer in the short term, right? We avoid something. We say, "Phew!" We feel relieved that you know that didn't happen. I dodged a bullet. Um, but then, when we're faced with that same situation again, when we see a red chair again, the anxiety is that much stronger, and that's how this cycle this cycle builds. Um, now, Dr. Layla, you mentioned before a little bit about reassurance seeking and how that can be problematic and what that looks like. Um, at what point does that s- start to become an issue? Mm-hmm.
0: So I think, you know, kids naturally, you know, as we discussed before, they naturally lean in to parents to decide what is safe or unsafe in the environment, right? So we can expect some reassurance seeking in children um, as being a healthy part of development, right? So for example, the first day of school, a child might be asking, Their parents, you know, um, is it okay? Is it going to be safe? Who's going to be in my class? I'm worried about who will be my teacher, et cetera. That's completely healthy, you know, in a new situation for a child to ask these types of questions and seek reassurance, especially as they're transitioning into a new situation. But I think when It goes beyond that period of initial adjustment where it becomes, you know, frequent where it's almost every day. It's now been several weeks that, you know, the child has started a new school year um, and they're still complaining or they're still asking for reassurance every single morning. That's when we start to think about it being more of a problem. And so I often tell parents when they're coming to see me, um, and they're working on a specific uh, area of concern. So uh, perhaps it could be going to sleep in their own room at night for an older child, and they're fearful of something bad happening. Um, You know, often with older children, I'll see fears around uh, break-ins or burglary, right? So um, although that could be developmentally appropriate at a certain age, um, if it extends out too long, it becomes a problem that interferes with their sleep. So they may ask parents for a lot of reassurance about the safety around, um, will their house be broken into? Will a burglar come in, et cetera, et cetera. So I'll often tell parents, you know, reassure your child once or twice. Um, And then when they follow up with more questions for reassurance, have them reassure themselves, right? So develop that internal dialogue where they say to themselves, um, well, I want you, you know, to reassure yourself and, and ask yourself these questions about whether or not a burglary is likely to happen or could happen? Um, or do you need to be fearful of this? What, what did we talk about before? So they start to reassure themselves in a way, right? Versus the parents, which is an external reassurance. Basically, what we're trying to do is have the child develop an internal monologue where they're reassuring themselves um, instead of seeking reassurance
2: from external sources. I really like uh, what Dr. Layla just said, um, just that idea of empowering the children, right? And that's something I often work on as well when the, yes. you know, we talk about how the re- reassurance seeking kind of turns into this bottomless pit and the parents don't know what to do um, and trying to like eventually uh, instill those, those tools in the, in the children and having them be able to, rather than go to the parent, having them themselves be able to kind of self soothe is really important.
1: Yeah, those are great suggestions. And I think for parents as well, actually providing the feedback on what's happening to their kids. So remember how we talked about how this is one of the ways that anxiety continues to stick around or, you know, anxiety continues to grow. So I'm going to answer this question one more time. And then we can hold hands while we're walking to school, but I'm not going to you know, give you the same answer again, or something along those lines where parents can actually verbalize their process as well. So their children know that's part of what's happening. um, And that's the reason why.
0: Yeah. And I would like to add to that too. There's been some research in the field of psychology, looking at reassurance, um, seeking behaviors and parents reassurance, Uh, behaviors and child anxiety. And what they've consistently found over the last few years is that the more reassurance parents do, the worse their children's anxiety becomes. So it's actually, um, although, you know, we would think it would be the opposite, where if you reassure your child more and more, they'll feel better. um, The research actually shows that it's in fact, not helpful at all for your kids um, in the long term.
1: That's a really important point. Yes, absolutely. It's actually um, fitting in with this cycle of avoidance, even though it's hard to see it in that way. Our children don't have the opportunity to learn that without their parents' comfort or reassurance or without those words, things would have still been okay. The things they were worried about would not have happened even without that. So with providing that reassurance and becoming a bottomless pit, they never have the opportunity to experience that empowering feeling on their own and that awareness that they were able to get through it um, without, you know, their parents providing those specific words for them.
0: Yeah. And I think in some context too, it's funny to think about it in this way, but I think sometimes kids, see their parents' reassurance as a red flag, right? Like if mom and dad are telling me everything's okay, something bad must be really about to happen, right? Um, it's just like you know, going to the doctor's office to get a needle. Is it gonna hurt? Oh no, dear, it won't hurt at all, right? It's it's gonna be okay. Oh no, it's, it's really gonna hurt now, right? Mom and dad are saying it's gonna be okay. So it's really gonna hurt, right? So um, it, it's funny to think of reassurance in that way, but I think some kids do perceive that reassurance um, from parents as being an alarm, right? Uh, Where they get more worked up.
2: I think um, that's a really good point. And uh, just to add to that as well, um, often with the kids that I work with, it's um, some things are going to be anxiety provoking, right? And some things are going to be a little bit painful. And rather than say, don't worry, it's going to be fine. um, it's Often it's more helpful to adapt some sort of, um, you know, kind of coaching where, you know, it, it might be difficult, it might be hard, but you can handle it right? The first day of school. Yeah. There might be some things that happen that you can't predict, but don't worry. You can handle it. And really, again, it comes back to that empowering your child.
1: That's such a great Great point, Dr. Chen. Even with my five-year-old, when he's having a hard time going to school, for example, I often say that to him, you have all of the tools that you need inside yourself to get through this. And it's okay if it's a little bit hard, you can do it. It's okay if it's a little bit um, uncomfortable, you can do it. So I, I really like that example as well, where, again, we're trying this model of empowerment to help them understand that they have the coping tools that they need within themselves. So one of the things that we've been talking a little bit about throughout this chat about anxiety is just the way that our thoughts influence our experience of anxiety and how we feel. Um, And I'm wondering, Dr. Leila, if you can maybe touch a little bit on this idea of thinking traps, um, what that looks like and how that impacts our experience of anxiety.
0: Mm -hmm, Absolutely. So. One of the first steps in therapy with a child or adolescent that has anxiety is to look at some of the ways that they're thinking in a situation and why they may be faulty. So I often like to give the example of the way that our thoughts and feelings and actions or behaviors are all linked together and they all influence each other in every situation. So a simple example would be, again, with the dog, you're walking down the street and you see a dog. So the situation is you see a a dog, and the thought you may have in that situation is, oh, dogs are really scary and really aggressive, and that dog is going to bite me. So that's a negative skewed thought, right? Where maybe you've learned over time, perhaps your parent, parent is also phobic of dogs, that dogs are something to be fearful of. And so you start to feel scared, right? So then the way you're thinking influences the way you feel. And if you're fearful of the dog, your action will be to avoid the dog or walk the other way, right? You're not going to approach the dog if you're scared of it. Now, if we have the exact same situation, the same dog, it has not changed, but now our thought is skewed towards a more realistic or positive way of thinking. So I might say to myself, oh, that dog looks really cute and friendly, and I love dogs. So I'm going to feel really safe approaching the dog. And I may approach it and give it some pets if the owner says it's okay." right? So exact same situation completely two different ways of feeling and two different outcomes based on how I'm thinking in the exact same situation. The problem is people with anxiety do a lot of thinking mistakes. So what I mean by that is when they're in a certain situation that is not uh, fearful or dangerous, they resort to feeling scared or feeling like the situation is more dangerous than it is.
2: So the thing with cognitive distortions is, you know, I think we all do, we all kind of have these cognitive distortions sometimes. Um, So to give an example, um, catastrophic thinking. Um, So this is when I catch myself doing sometimes, where it's basically, you know, something small might happen, um, and then all all of a sudden in your mind, you're escalating to it being a bigger and bigger and bigger issue. Um, So for example, uh, my teenagers often, it might be something along the lines of, they failed a test, Right. And so they fail the test and then all of a sudden they're thinking, okay, I failed the test. Um, the teacher is gonna hate me. I'm gonna get a bad mark. I'm gonna fail the course. I'm not gonna do well in high school and then I'm not gonna get into university and then I'm not gonna get a good job, right? So it goes from one small thing into something really big. Um, so again, it's, it's something that I think we all do from time to time. The issue is how often we're doing it and how much it kind of gets in the way and might interfere, right? So rather than just say, okay, I didn't do so well in that test. Um, I'm gonna try and do better on the next one. You kind of get into that kind of negative spiral downward. Um, Another example is um, kind of overestimating bad things, right? So um, often this happens um, in particular if somebody hears something on the news. So for example, you hear about a car accident or a plane crash or something along those lines, um, all of a sudden you might think, oh, I don't wanna get in the car because I'm gonna get in an accident. You're kind of overestimating the chance of something bad happening, right? So again, it's sort of, we all do these things from time to time, but it's really important to kind of catch ourselves and make sure that, hey, wait a second, I gotta recheck my thinking. Um, Am I falling into one of these, You know, am I having a cognitive distortion here? Am I falling into one of these traps Um, and how am I gonna get myself out of it?
1: Yeah, those are really great examples. And I think also, you know, recognizing that just because we have a thought that comes into our mind, it doesn't mean that it's actually going to happen. It doesn't mean that it's, it's true. And it might sound funny to say that because it seems like an obvious thing, but we don't always realize that in the moment sometimes we think that just because we've had a thought that is what's going to happen um so like you were talking about with catastrophic thinking this idea that the outcome is going to be terrible and we won't be able to manage it or with overestimating maybe something has happened once um but the other several times we did it that scenario didn't happen, but we assume that it will happen every time. Um, So overestimating the likelihood of that. I think those are really, really great examples of how our thoughts can make us feel. Because of course, if we think that the worst is going to happen, of course, we're going to feel anxious in response to that. And Dr. Leila, did you have anything to add there? Um, Just about examples with your own clients or um, other information about cognitive distortions?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, as I mentioned previously, one of the more common anxiety disorders I see in clinical practice, in private practice specifically, is the social anxiety. Um, So, for example... People with social anxiety tend to lean towards um, thinking that other people are perceiving them in a negative way. So, for example, you're in high school and you're walking down the hall and, you know, this girl who you don't really know well but would like to be friends with gives you a bit of a funny look. Um, people with social anxiety will tend towards uh, thinking that's um, a negative evaluation, right? Like that girl hates me. She doesn't like what I'm wearing. Um, she'll never talk to me again. Uh, you know, is she mad at me? So they, they tend to think in ways that are always in that negative evaluation. And so we work on addressing those cognitive distortions in therapy and kind of looking at the facts to say, hey, um, you know, what else could be going on here? Like maybe she was thinking of something that happened earlier that day or she didn't even notice you were standing there Or, you know, perhaps that's just the way, you know, she looks early in the morning when she's tired, (laughs) right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we look at more um, realistic ways of addressing what could be happening as opposed to it being always towards that negative uh, evaluation.
1: Yes. Considering those other possibilities and not just accepting that thought as factual. Oh, she's mad at me or, you know, it's something that I did. Um, those are great examples of how thinking can affect the way that we feel and in particular, our experience of anxiety. All right. So we've talked a lot today about what anxiety is and how that's experienced, um, the types of thinking that can impact our feelings of anxiety. And in our next episode, we're going to talk more specifically about how we can help children and teens cope with anxiety, and how their parents can help them through that as well. So thank you to Dr. Jen and Dr. Layla. And we look forward to our next podcast.